marsh reeds. That's what I use it on it. And of course, the marshes make it from epoxy resin. So everything did it separate. I do, uh, and I use a lot of kind of uh, fine arts on it, like painting, technique with resin, and cutting and clay carving. So <laughs> thank you so much for that. Uh, and if you want to add me at my social media, uh, my business names, Afaf Arts, I have uh, on social media, Instagram, Snapchat, and Facebook. Thank you so much and uh, appreciate uh, Thank you. What you just heard were remarks I recorded from some of the organizers, volunteers, and attendees at the grand opening of the Sinan Shibani Marsh Arabs project, which included the construction of a modif structure on the lawn of Rice University in Houston, Texas. The modif structure will stay at Rice through Hi, December 2023. Hi, I'm Jill Fritz with the Humane Society of the United States and you're listening to KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the film screening of Stories I've Told the Stars, Friday, September 22nd, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts in Portland. Stories I've Told the Stars is a short documentary that features the stories of three men who left their homes in Ethiopia in the 80s to escape civil war. They share stories of their experiences as refugees, their journey to the United States, and their resettlement in the Pacific Northwest. Stories I've Told the Stars will show Friday, September 22nd from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts, 511 Northwest Broadway, in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. KBOO's Board of Directors meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 6 p.m. This month's meeting will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland and online through a public video conference. Masks and proof of vaccination are required at this time. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting virtually can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Voices for the Animals. I'm your host, Michelle Coppola. 
On today's show, we are going to revisit and update a situation that we've covered previously on Voices for the Animals. Back in March and April, you may remember, I spoke with a couple of veteran volunteers from the Multnomah County Animal Shelter, as well as the new shelter manager about the ongoing problems out there at the shelter in Troutdale. There were issues of mismanagement, abysmal animal care, and a lack of transparency and accountability, and they've all been documented in audits and studies with consultants going back at least seven years. Now, last year, the shelter had to shut down due to a lack of staff and overcrowding, and it was then that a flurry of media attention about the shelter's problems forced Multnomah County Commission Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson to reopen the shelter and then launch another full review of the agency. At that time, Peterson and the new shelter manager, Aaron Grayheck, promised that problems would be addressed and that significant improvements would be made even before the latest audit was finished. Here's some of what Grayheck told me back in April. I think the um, plan that we've crafted in partnership with the chair and her staff in terms of reviewing all of those audit findings and um, documenting like what the findings were, what interventions were proposed at the time, what has been done, what hasn't, as well as looking at policies and procedures and how we capture those and how we train staff to those. I feel really good about the intentional focus that we're doing in all of those areas. And I think that there's a renewed commitment from the Board of Commissioners about monitoring that work plan, about holding me and our staff accountable to the completion of that work plan. Speaking there was Erin Grayheck, the latest director of the Multnomah County Animal Shelter. So has there actually been accountability or any visible or verifiable change at the shelter since then? Here's what one volunteer advocate told the Multnomah County commissioners as recently as August 24th when a group of them testified as the result of the presumed deaths of two adopted shelter dogs named Fig and Petunia. Since Aaron was given the director position, there's been reviews and there's been reviews of the reviews, but there's not been much meaningful change. Fig and Petunia died cruel deaths on Aaron's watch and therefore on your watch. They were given to a known abuser because adoption at MCAS is all about statistics and not about animal welfare. What happened to Fig and Petunia is not a one-off situation either. Animal Services has repeatedly failed to treat animals in pain despite a half a million dollars of unspent donations. We are asking you to intervene, make animal welfare a priority in animal services. We are begging you for your help. That was Monica Klein testifying on behalf of a group of volunteers and local animal advocates to the Multnomah County Commissioners about the continuing problems and what they see as a lack of progress when it comes to improving MCAS. Here to talk with us today about the issues at the shelter is Helen Chauncey, a veteran volunteer who's been working at MCAS since 2017. Helen, thanks so much for being here. So let's start with this. As a longtime volunteer, what problems at the shelter concern you the most? I'm going to focus on the issues since last July when a new director was brought on. And there were great promises of change. So what concerns me is, is there change, and is it change in the right direction? Before I get into that, I need to start by saying I'm speaking as a private citizen. That's under the current management at MCAS, there's what feels to me like an almost unprecedented hostility toward volunteers. They fired a volunteer recently who was vocal about trying to find a home for a sick, frightened dog. There's a kind of protective don't-speak-out atmosphere that was not at MCAS previously, in my opinion. So the result is something of a climate of silence. And for those of us who talk to you or other members of the media, we need to be clear that we're speaking as private citizens. 
we could be fired anyway. Uh, but it, it seems so necessary to have to say this, but for what it's worth, I'm speaking as a private citizen. And I want to, one other quick comment. I'm going to express concerns, but I'm also going to note there are people at MCAS who are my heroes. There are volunteers who are devoted to the welfare of the animals. There are animal care staff who are also, I'm in awe of those people, and it's a privilege to work with them. I don't feel that way about senior management. That's where I'm gravely concerned. So if we could launch off from that into what is sort of the umbrella issue here, which is the pace of change after the promises of change when it, once the, the current director was hired. So what I see is actually a drift in several areas to change in the wrong direction. I, I see the vocabulary and the metrics at the shelter moving away from an animal care mentality toward a business industrial complex. We, we don't have a shelter manager anymore. We have a chief operating officer. Our kill rates are determined by something slightly cryptic called industry standards. Success of adoptions is based on an arithmetic exercise. How many times a dog or cat goes out the door, like an Excel spreadsheet. So that mentality, a business industrial mentality rather than an animal welfare mentality, worries me a lot. And a lot of it is driven by numbers, which is understandable if you're a business and is more problematic if you're engaged in animal welfare. I want to stop you right there because I do have a follow-up question to something you just said when you were talking about the metrics of animals adoptions, which is they're measuring success by how many animals are going out the door. To your knowledge, is there any sort of data being collected about how many animals are returned from being adopted at MCAS? They have that in numbers. What they don't have is a qualitative question they should be asking about each of those returns, which is why is what we thought would be a successful adoption not one? What did we miss? How can we approve this for the future? Those are qualitative questions. They're not numbers questions, and those questions are not there. Let's talk a bit about animal care. When I spoke with two other veteran volunteers back in March, one of their biggest concerns was the lack of consistent medical care for animals that were in pain and those with treatable medical conditions. Now, have you observed that issue as having been addressed at all or improved at all during the last year? No, I haven't. There has been a reluctance if you go through the numbers and pull up the background records, which you almost have to do through a public records request. You want to be, in any information I've given you, it comes from that. So this is all public information, no state secrets here. A fair number of animals are being euthanized because they're being listed as unhealthy and untreatable for highly treatable conditions. And on, on more than one occasion, quite a few occasions, The records say we don't have the money to address this, but they do have the money to address this. I mean, that came out in the media that they are actually sitting on a veritable mountain of money uh, where that they could be putting towards programs and animal care, correct? Yes. And for medical care alone, so they're sitting on a lot of money. But let's focus for a minute on medical care because that addresses the issue of pain. If animals are in pain, if they have open sores, if they have impacted teeth, if you pick the issue, you or I would also be cranky if we were in pain and that pain wasn't treated. If the animal's pain isn't treated, they become cranky. It's the easiest way to describe this. Then they become hard to adopt, then they're killed. So the issue of pain is a serious one. There is a fund called Dolly's Fund, which it, it develops, it took a county audit to cast light on this, but it develops that there's just over half a million dollars in that fund that can only be spent on health care and could easily be spent addressing the issue of pain. If they can't become 
veterinary dental specialists, that may be understandable. But treating pain is not that difficult. And I, I should note that the, the issue of funding, the Dye Fund is a good example, is one where the public is actually trying to help with the issue. Dolly's Fund is, the, the money in Dolly's Fund comes from two sources. The county puts money in, so that's taxpayer dollars, and it renews that each year. So the fund is never going to run out. No one can say to you, we can't spend that money now, we might need it later, because they're always going to have a renewal of those funds. In addition, the public puts money into those funds, and I'm one of the people who did that. I, I would not do it again, for, at least until there's a much different uh, environment in place. But I made a donation to Dolly's Fund, oh, maybe eight months or so ago, and the response I got helps highlight the indifference to donors. I got an automatically generated acknowledgement that was signed by a director, two directors prior to the current one. This was by way of saying to me, look, you, you, look, you stupid soul, you can give us money, but we're not going to be respectful enough to even acknowledge your contribution with the name of our current director. This sort of thing really worries me. At some point down the line, the public will stop. To be, there are many organizations that help, help animals in our area. The public could easily say, I really do want to help. I want to make a difference. But it's not possible to make a difference there. And that's going to be a problem for the animals at MCAS. So I want to talk a little bit more about those animals still not getting the care they need at MCAS. Do you have any recent examples you could point to of a pet that you've observed who suffered and perhaps had a poor outcome as a result of that? There's a, there's a, a pretty good example of exactly what you just described in the case of a dog named Cloud, because it highlights both the treatment of pain issue and also the adoption churn issue. Cloud was a sweet young poodle mix. She came into us with her fur matted and open sores, for which the shelter did not treat her. She's cute as a button. Did she not even get a bath? She did not get a bath, which is actually an, another issue, this issue about bathing dogs. She turned through the MCAS adoption mill twice, and her mounting unsocial behavior, which was definitely there, was driven by pain. This is the dog a volunteer really desperately tried to help offered to foster, offered to adopt, and the family who returned Cloud the second time specifically called attention to her basic medical needs. They were thinking she would be cared for. That was misplaced trust. If it's more convenient to kill a dog than treat it, it, that appears to be what happened, and certainly with Cloud, that is what happened. So adoption churn, numbers, failure to treat pain, a dog being killed. I'm aware of that situation that you're talking about, another volunteer related to me, and ultimately the volunteer who wanted to foster this dog and care for it and get it out of the system and give it an opportunity to heal and be adoptable was ultimately let go. That is correct. That case is like a flashing warning sign for many of us. Are we not supposed to offer to help the dogs? Are we not supposed to speak out too loudly? What exactly is the message apart from be quiet? That's that's the concern with that. Apart from the fact this was a fantastic volunteer and, and she, it's a real loss to the dogs in the kennels that she's not there. But there's also this broader message. What are they saying in their attitudes toward volunteers? 
So since we're on the subject of volunteers, I guess the shelter would probably have a different spin on what happened with that particular volunteer. But the fact is that they desperately need help, right? What I heard from the shelter manager back in April seemed to indicate that many of their problems come from a lack of staff and a lack of help. So it's worth doing a quick comparison here with Oregon Humane Society. There is no shortage of volunteers out there. The Oregon Humane Society currently has about 2,000 volunteers, and that's actually down from a high watermark of about 5,000 volunteers. But they have so many volunteers that if you decided right now you really wanted to volunteer, where do you apply? Oregon Humane Society has so many volunteers that it's actually closed its application process until January 2024. MCAS does not have that problem. So the question is, why, with knowing that there are plenty of people out there, why are they not coming in to the, uh, the prospective volunteers not coming into the shelter? There are a couple of answers to that. It's it's in Troutdale. Okay, for many people, you've got to do you've got to drive a little bit farther. It also is now the case, currently the case, that if you want to volunteer at MCAS and you were not a volunteer prior to COVID, you have to, in essence, I'm going to say, prove yourself. I think the official explanation is acclimatize yourself by coming in at 7:30 in the morning and scrubbing the kennel floors. There's some talk about changing this policy. So we're speaking now the first week in September. Let's say we picked ourselves up in some time machine and dropped ourselves down at the end of September. Is it possible they could change that policy? Yes, but all I can tell you is what they are doing now. And now if you wanted to volunteer and you were not a volunteer at MCAS pre-COVID, you've got to go in at 7.30 and, and scrub kennel floors. I couldn't do that, and I'm devoted to the animals. But what's important, and this is highlighted by the comparison with uh, the Oregon Humane Society, the problem of not having many volunteers is not because there aren't enough volunteers out there. This isn't a staff shortage, volunteer shortage issue. There are plenty of potential volunteers out there. You know, I got to say, it would seem to me that retaining such a policy when they need as much help as they do would be counterintuitive. I mean, it's almost a deterrent, especially to people who maybe could really help. They have needed skills other than physical labor they could offer. Would you have any insight as to why they are still insisting on that, especially now? So in all fairness here, I'm scratching my head saying, why are they doing that? But I don't think they're trying to discourage anybody. I think they don't want staff to have to clean kennel floors. In a report that's part of an endless review process that's going on at the shelter, uh, one of the accomplishments that was listed for this interim period was kennel floors are getting scrubbed. Not, there was no connection in the write-up, kennel floors are getting scrubbed because we have volunteers actually are so dedicated they're willing to do this uh, I think they're all floating it's common in shelters for volunteers during the course of a day if they to spot clean kennels but it's it, the common practice is for staff to do full professional cleaning of the kennels I think that's what they're doing with this they're trying to offload that need and it's a need all right onto the volunteers that's what I think but this system isn't working to produce clean kennels and dogs are social animals. They don't like to live in their own filth. It isn't healthy for them. Who does? Exactly. So this is not a good policy for getting the floors cleaned, which isn't good for the animals. And for what it's worth, it's not attractive to people who come in to look at the animals. What worries me here is that the concern for animal welfare, that phrase, animal welfare, seems to be receding. There have been many, many, many words and many, many, many reports. I am not seeing in any of those reports where MCAS senior management says 
And based on our understanding of animal welfare, here's where we're going to set standards of excellence in this regard. They spend a lot of time saying, here are everybody else's standards, maybe we can hold on to those. But what I looked for and didn't find, so far have not found in any of those reports, is here's where we're going to go beyond that. Here's where we're going to achieve real excellence because what matters most is animal welfare. Let's circle back a little bit to the adoption issue, because I know you wanted to talk about that a little bit more. And this is really important, especially with regard to adoption policies at MCAS. As you're aware, the Oregonian recently ran a terrible story about the adoption of that bonded pair of dogs who were given to an abusive man with a criminal record. He was on the Do Not Adopt list at Oregon Humane Society, which was not shared with MCAS, to be fair. And after a volunteer adoption counselor advised against it, they still adopted these dogs out to him. And for those who don't know, it's believed that he mistreated the dogs and possibly even starved them to death. Um, Shelter management and law enforcement, despite knowing the dogs were likely endangered, did very little to retrieve them or help them. And I've been told by other MCAS volunteers that this was not an isolated case of a bad adoption, that they are continuing to be done at the shelter even despite the spotlight on them. Uh, Would you concur with that assessment? And, And what have you seen to that end? I would concur with that assessment. The official policy in the wake of the fig and petunia, that's the adopted pair, in the wake of that, an official policy is adoption counselors can say no. But it's very clear that they should not be doing that on anything like a common uh, standard. That is, that the idea here, this gets back to the arithmetic issue, the idea here is push animals out the door. So if they do want to say no, and the, the adopter uh, the staff member uh, who, who was handling the adoption for doing you're right, did want to say no. They need to bump that up to a supervisor and get approval. It's the supervisor, once you move up into the supervisor level, you move up into the senior management Excel spreadsheet. This is about numbers level. And you're going to be discouraged fairly quickly if every time you say, this is not going to be a successful adoption, the supervisor says, no, go ahead with that adoption. So the, the fact that there's an official policy that says, yes, you can say no, is not showing up in a more thoughtful approach to handling the adoptions. If anything, one of many, many reports, one, one of the uh, senior managers, or the writer of the report in any event, hunted around to see how short a period of time you could handle an adoption interview and found one that was for five minutes only. So in, that doesn't mean everybody at MCIS's adoption interview is only five minutes. Right. It's as if they're looking for ways to say, we don't have to put much effort into this. Adopt the animals out. You know, so we get back to Cloud's story. They're, we get a, far more animals back, often within 24 hours, than we should be getting back, often significantly more stressed. Often, and this is the unfortunate part, a bite has been involved. The dogs have been placed in houses with other dogs and they haven't been introduced slowly. They haven't been given the resources to encourage that introduction slowly. Once a dog has a bite history, they're moving pretty fast toward the euthanasia chain. And that's what happens with cloud. So what really needs to happen is the opposite of what is happening. Not how many numbers on a spreadsheet, but qualitatively, with each one of those returns, what did we not catch? How can we make this better? Really take the time to make these adoptions work. That is not happening. 
You're listening to Voices for the Animals on KBOO Portland. We're speaking with Helen Chauncey, a veteran volunteer at Multnomah County Animal Shelter, known as MCAS, about her observations over six months after the Multnomah County Commission launched an extensive review of shelter operations, conditions, and management. For Helen's edification and my own, I do want to make clear once again that Helen speaks only as a knowledgeable, experienced volunteer at the shelter and concerned member of the public. With that in mind, what I find interesting, Helen, is that all reports say that the shelter is not lacking funding. Money is really not the issue that's hampering real change at MCAS. From your observations and in your opinion, where is that money being spent or not spent, and why isn't it being used to improve conditions for animals? Does it actually seem like more animal care staff is on the floor and helping pets? There's actually been a staffing up, a kind of bulking up, of senior administrative staff. So at this point, if you think of this in uh, business terms, we've got a chief executive officer, we have a chief operating officer, and then we have two additional vice presidents, one supposedly for animal care, one for for, uh, staff care and the like, which has pushed up the financial outflows, taxpayers' dollars. All of that is upper management. It's not the people, the actual animal care staff at the bottom. And I I, I just wonder if Erin can't see that or if that's what she's comfortable with so that gap between the top and the bottom uh, isn't being addressed because either she doesn't see it or she's just plain comfortable with the fact that it's not being addressed. The county commission made additional funds available to the uh, shelter this year to hire additional staff, at least six of whom are animal care staff. That is folks, we'll call these folks about boots on the ground is a good way to describe those folks. Uh, Why the animal shelter, I want the animal shelter to get everything it can get, uh, but for what it's worth, we have real human problems. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Sure. We have real human problems in this county, and the uh, county audit that discovered the half a million in Dolly's fund that was not being spent discovered that the animal shelter didn't spend all of its own staff money, but they gave it more staff money. The county gave it more staff money. So there's a certain scratching of heads here. There are way too many senior managers and they are way too expensive. What would you say is the single biggest obstacle to making significant change for the better at MCAS? A real will to real change. So there's been a lot of talk about change. Change has been supposedly in the works since at least the 2016 audit. Then there was a 2018 audit. Then there was extensive press coverage. So when Erin was hired, she should have been able to hit the ground running, and that didn't happen. Then in February of this year, with Erin eight months into the job, there was another five-month review triggered. We're now on month seven of that five-month review. In a, in a meeting with the volunteers, put the information publicly available, Erin uh, recently said, fundamental change is hard to see. I find that a very chilling statement. Uh, We shouldn't be fussing around with the emperor's new change policy. We should be able to see the change. In August, so we're now September, the shelter hired a consultant, a project manager, to oversee change, right? Mm -hmm. That's everything okay. You, You have to wonder why a consultant, why with this many senior management in place, this many individuals with senior management, 
why can't they implement change? Why a temporary position with, with no long-term accountability? But his first task is, has not been to implement change. His first task has been to conduct a review of the reviews. So we've been told that his hiring is, the, is an indication of change, and yet his first job is review of the reviews of a review of an audit of an audit. The will to real change is not there. As an on-the-floor long-term veteran volunteer in the past year, have you seen anything that makes you hopeful? Have you seen anything that we could actually point to and say, yes, this is better? What's better is that there is a light being shined on the shelter. So if something positive has come out of all of this, it's inadvertent. It's the fact that a Klieg light has been shined on that shelter. And sooner or later, someone is going to say, change should be visible and we can't see it. All right. So I've got to ask, given how disheartening the conditions seem to be and the alleged glacial pace of change, what keeps you volunteering and why would you encourage people to still volunteer at MCAS? There are days when I look at all of this, when I maybe I've uh, spent some time reading one of these endless reviews of reports of audits, of reviews of reports, and I think, dear God, particularly at the, at the point at which I think, you know, if I talk to anybody in the media about this, they could fire me too. And then I think two things. One, okay, tell them to go ahead and fire me because we are somebody has to have, be able to speak out on behalf of the actual animals themselves. And two, and this gets back to the uh, item number two, the dogs are still there. The cats are still there, too, but I'll focus on dogs. They still need help. Get, if we could really, if the will were there, make the Multnomah County Animal Shelter a nas- shining national example of how to do a good job with an open shelter. The animals are still there. They still need help. In some ways, the best volunteers are the volunteers that put blinders on and just don't pay attention to any of this and go in there day after day to provide service to those animals. Those people are my absolute heroes. That was Helen Chauncey, longtime volunteer at Multnomah County Animal Services. I want to thank her and the other dedicated volunteers I spoke with about their observations during the last year at the shelter. By the way, I did reach out to the Multnomah County Commissioner's Office and outlined the continuing concerns that were presented to me by the volunteers and asked for a response on behalf of the shelter and the Commissioner's Office. They did indeed respond in detail in writing with the following highlights. The shelter and county commissioner's office contend that there have been concrete improvements in animal care at the shelter. They include changing the cleaning and feeding procedures, documenting enrichment activities, and the hiring of seven new animal care staff members who are accountable in real time. As to the assertion that the shelter is focusing the bulk of its resources on administrative staff rather than hiring direct animal care workers, the commissioner's office spokesperson says that in addition to the direct animal care staff that I mentioned earlier, they have only hired one external consultant since February, and that was in order to jumpstart enrichment activities for the dogs. They've also hired an internal project manager to implement recommendations. Now, the shelter does acknowledge that there is still much to do when it comes to improving adoption counseling and protocols. They concur that bad adoptions were done in the past and with poor oversight. However, they say that they do not consider adoption returns 
as failures because it gives them more information about the pet. The shelter also denies that animals are not getting needed medical care. They report that they have a proactive process for making sure pets get pain management and medical attention as determined by the veterinary professionals on staff, although they do acknowledge that staffing levels sometimes prevent them from addressing the medical concerns as quickly as they might like. I do want to thank the Multnomah County Commissioner's Office for their time in responding to the concerns. Uh, like I said, it was a very detailed response, and I would really encourage you to read the full text on the Voices for the Animals show page at kboo.fm. You'll also find a podcast of this show you can share and other links relevant to this story there as well. I'm Michelle Coppola for Voices for the Animals, and until next time, be kind to animals, to each other, and most of all, to yourself. Hi, this is Walt Perizader with the group Chicago, and you're listening to K.